This morning we're going to continue in our Ephesians series with a message entitled Mystery Unraveled. If you want to turn to chapter 3 of Ephesians, we're going to be starting off there. I've always been a person who kind of likes mystery. And I've always been fascinated by magic. And when I say magic, I'm not talking about witchcraft, Harry Potter, casting spells, that kind of, of magic. I'm talking about illusion, magic tricks, you know, Penn and Teller, David Copperfield kind of magic. And I kind of like it when they're able to do things that, and you look at it and you go, how did they do that? And you just want to figure out, you kind of want to sneak behind the curtain and, and figure out how they did what seems to be impossible. And I'm the kind of person that, that needs those kind of answers to these puzzles. It just, it'll drive me crazy if I can't find an answer to something that, that is just rattling around in my brain. And I've always been that way. I remember a time when I was in fifth grade, I got sent to the office by a teacher because I wouldn't let a subject matter drop. It's something that just got kind of stuck in my head, and I just kept insisting that she tell me the answer to a question. You're like, well, what was the question? Well, it started with her seeing me take my bubble gum out of my mouth and stick it to the bottom of my desk. And she said, you're not supposed to stick your bubble gum to the bottom of your desk. It's really hard for the janitors to get off, and, and you shouldn't be doing that. And I said, well, how come gum sticks to the bottom of the desk? And she said, because it's sticky. I said, well, what makes it sticky? She said, because it's just the way it's made. I said, well, what in it and the way it's made made it sticky? And she said, well, it's just the ingredients it's made out of. I said, okay, which ingredient is sticky? You know, which, which one is sticky? And, you know, keep in mind, you know, I'm, I'm in fifth grade here. I, I want to know the answer to this. And she said, that's not the point. The point is, I don't want you putting your gum under the desk. I said, but why is this sticky? Don't you know the answer? You're a teacher. She said, well, why don't you go ask the principal? I'm going to send you to the office, and you, maybe he can tell you what's sticky. And I know what you are thinking. Number one, I was a little bit of a smart aleck, even at an early age. But I really, really did want to know why gum was sticky. And two, I was a little bit of a nerd, especially when it comes to science. I wanted to know the answer to why gum was sticky. And I think, looking back on it, God was just showing me or putting something in me that would serve me later in life. It served me in the military. I, I would drive my NCOs nuts because I had always asked the question, why? Why are we doing it that way? Wouldn't it be easier to do it this way? It served me as a paramedic, asking the why question instead of just treating what was in front of me. And it serves me really well as a registered nurse. And most importantly, it served me very well as a Bible teacher, asking the question, why? And a lot of people, depending on your generation probably, but maybe some of you were raised with the idea of you never question authority. You never ask the why question. You just simply say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and go do it. But do you know that God actually wants you to ask him that question? He wants you to come to him and reason with him and let him teach you the why behind the 
the commands that he gives. And that's one of the things that makes our religion, the Christian religion in particular, unique, is that our God actively encourages us to reason with him and show us what the truth is. And God's always been that way. Throughout the entire Bible, he never, he very rarely, um, I can only think of just off the top of my head maybe twice where he just said, do it and do it this way and just go and do it. He would always explain the why. But sometimes he has to hide certain truths for us until he can handle it. I always use a comparison of you don't always give somebody a freedom or you don't always give somebody a reason if they can't understand the reason. And I can use a comparison of uh, handing a loaded pistol to a two-year-old child and expecting them to remember the rules of firearm safety. It's probably not going to work out for you. They're not mature enough and understanding enough to know that. Sometimes God is the same way with us. He doesn't give us all the answers right away, and he has to um, wait until we are mature enough to handle those kind of truth. And this is the way that God has done it throughout biblical history. Let me give you some examples of this, and this is going to blow your mind. Everybody know who Abraham is, right? Abraham, the father of the great, what are called the great monotheistic faiths on earth. Islam, Judaism, and of course Christianity. He was a father of faith. But do you know that he didn't know what you know today? He never had the complete picture? Doesn't that blow you away that you know more than Abraham? What about Moses? Moses, the greatest lawgiver who ever lived, the one who pretty much the entire planet lives under some form of the Ten Commandments that he wrote through the hand of God. If anyone should know the secrets of God, it's Moses. But Moses really didn't even have 10% of the completed picture that you and I have. What about King David or King Solomon? As mighty and as wise as they are, they only knew God as creator. They called him Adonai, or El Shaddai, the almighty God. Even the greatest evangelist that ever lived, John the Baptist, he told the entire world that Jesus was here. He, Jesus himself called him the greatest evangelist that ever lived. Yet he said that the, anyone in the kingdom of God was greater than John the Baptist. That's you and me. We knew more than he did. We have that whole picture. Old Testament people really only had a small fraction of the complete picture. And that picture always had some holes in it. They didn't have a, a complete idea of what God was doing all the time particularly when it came to how God wanted to interact with all of us. They thought it was just about religious ceremony. You do this, you don't do that, you avoid that, and God will be happy. And unfortunately, too many people view the Christian faith of, as that is all it is. Do this, do that, avoid that, and God will be happy. If you believe that, please, please listen to this message today, because it's, the Christian faith is not about that. It's not about just religious ceremony. God has never wanted that for his people. He wants to be Abba to us. He wants to be Father. After all, Jesus didn't teach us how to pray our distant, uninterested, almighty deity, hallowed be your name. He said, our Father, 
who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. That intimacy is what Paul is teaching the Ephesian church here. He wants to be the God of the question. God wants to be the God of your doubts. God wants to be the God of your fears. And God wants to be the God of every mystery or unanswered question you may ever have. And today as we continue our study in Paul's letter of the Ephesians, we will see how God used thousands of years of history to prepare the world for the arrival of his son. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not, was not made known to men in other generations, and it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentile the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent that was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And Father, as we study your word this morning, as we look into Paul's writings, I ask, Father, that first, you reveal some of the whys that trouble us. And second, you make us comfortable again with mystery. That you place within us a heart that trusts you even when we don't understand. Father God, just be with us this morning as we dig into your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now I mentioned a few moments ago that sometimes the things of God are hidden from us until we can handle them. This is also true in biblical history. The administration of Paul's grace, that, or excuse me, the administration of God's grace that Paul is talking about there is simply called the gospel or the good news. It's always been hinted at even in the New Testament. However, in the New Testament, it was partially hidden. Biblical scholars say that the Old Testament is Jesus concealed, while the New Testament is Jesus revealed. But why did God conceal this plan from the patriarchs? 
or the leaders of the Old Testament. Even the prophets, the ones who spoke the very words of God, didn't have the whole picture, but just that, that word that God gave them. The first thing we have to realize is that God has been superintending a restoration project since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. People often ask him, well, what does God want? What does he expect? What does he want from me? And I say, we need to go back to Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, chapter 3. He wants to walk in a garden with you and me. He wants us to be completely innocent of sin and existing in perfect love with you and I. You see, I didn't realize this, even when I was in Bible school studying for the ministry. Has anybody ever taken classes thinking that you're going to find all the answers once you take this class and you end up having more questions than answers? That happened to me when I was studying the Bible. I think, man, I'm going to become a pastor. I'm going to have all those answers. I'm going to know the, the deep secrets of God. And I found the more I studied, the more questions I had. And it was kind of distressing for me because, as I said in the beginning, I'm a person who wants to know the why. I'm a person who wants to be able to understand and digest and be able to explain the answer to other people. And as I was studying the subject of soteriology, which is a study of the order of salvation, tons of questions popped into my mind as I mentally had to dissect the two competing theories behind it, one called Calvinism, one called Arminianism. We're on the Arminian side here in the Assemblies of God. And it was causing me to question even more. I would, I would, the, I would read something from Calvin and I would, I would kind of go more toward the Calvinist side or I'd listen to R.C. Sproul or, or some of the great um, people on the radio and I'd, I'd, I'd see myself drifting more toward Calvinism. Then I'd listen to somebody that's Pentecostal or, or, um, or, or non-reformed over here and I'd be drifting kind of that way for a while. And it caused me to have just tons of questions. And what finally set things in my mind is when I finally realized what happened at the fall of man or humanity. And what happened at the fall is that the image of God that was placed within us, the Imago Dei, was completely destroyed and completely marred and, and, and ruined. And I never really realized that. I always wanted to have it in my spirit or in my mind that mankind is essentially good and just wants to, to be good. And what I didn't realize is that when, the, when humanity fell in the garden, that, that image of God that is within each one of us that we call a spirit was completely and utterly destroyed in its ability to want to do good. It's always going to be drawn toward things that are evil. And since the fall, humanity has tried dozens of different ways, many of them recorded in the Old Testament, of returning to God on their own. One people even built a giant ziggurat, or I think that's the name of it, but a giant tower trying to reach God. And God had to confuse their languages to get them to stop. But they never really asked God what he wanted. They always tried to do it on their own. We are always worried about our peace or our comfort, our prosperity or our wants and desires, and never asking God 
what he wanted. Even the tabernacle that God gave the Israelites in all of its symbolic richness didn't come close to cleansing the heart of wickedness or making the people more holy. It was just something to point to the Christ that was going to come. You can read about that in Hebrews 10. That's your homework. Hebrews 10 spells that out for us. It came to the conclusion that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But why? why? Why could not that please God? Why do we have thousands of different religions all trying to do the same thing but failing? If you look at a couple of them, one we hear about a lot, Islam. Islam, it's an it's a 8th century offshoot of Arabic Judaism. It rolls into opposition to the spread of Christianity. Its central beliefs is that through obedience to the Korah or the Quran and Allah, you may, 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 you never know, may achieve paradise through strict obedience to Islamic law and tradition. In other words, it's all up to your effort. It's all up to you. Buddhism. Its primary focus is achieve enlightenment, which would be similar kind of to our belief in heaven, kind of. Your deeds go into a scale that measures good and bad, and you achieve levels of karma, both good and bad, that determine your level <coughs> excuse me, of, of reincarnation into a different ex form of existence or rebirth into a different form of yourself. Once you hit perfection, you become part of the universal consciousness or force, which is their version of heaven. In other words, it's all on your effort in life that determines the next one. Hinduism. Hinduism believes that God is part of all creation. He's as much in the rocks, that stool, that water bottle, this, the clothes you're wearing, as he is in a temple. They have many deities, with Brahman being the chief of them. They believe in reincarnation based on karma also. Yoga is practiced as a religious exercise, and they follow several different religious books and writings of the Vegas, who are the religious, religious elite. Again, it's all about your effort that determines your reward and what you're going to reincarnate as. Judaism, we know pretty well as Christians. They follow the same general principles we do, except that they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They follow the law of Moses and the rules of their synagogue. But again, in their religion, it's all up to you. And that's the problem. This is the problem. Why can't any of these man-made religions get you closer to God? Because they never address the central problem. They never address the fallen nature of humanity. They never address the fact we were created in the perfect image of God. And that image was dealt a death blow when humanity fell into sin. And that brings us to the New Testament, which is Jesus revealed. Verse 2 says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. The gospel that saves us is that administration of God's grace. And if you don't really know any other parts of the Bible, I always tell people, if you really want to understand the Bible, 
You have to become experts in Genesis chapter 3 because that shows you the problem and John chapter 3 because that shows you the solution. You'll be able to understand not only the Bible, but life as we see it today. Genesis chapter 3 will show you the reality. And you finally realize that when humanity sinned, they fell and, and ruined that nature of God within them. And they become incapable of true goodness in God's eyes. It will help you understand why there is war. Why there is selfishness. Why there is crime. And why it's worse where people have tried to legislate a form of godliness, but keeps God out of it. Have you ever wondered why places like Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles are just going to the dogs right now? Why it's so bad there? Because they try to legislate morality. And you can't ever do that. It didn't work with God with the Ten Commandments. What makes you think we're going to be able to do it? Right now we have people living like animals in the streets. Using drugs, having sex in front of people, the Sidewalk is their toilet. Homelessness is huge. But if you ask the people, the leaders of these cities, they'll say, well, just, just give us a little bit more power. Just give us a little bit more money. Just give us a little bit more time. We can fix it. But the more money they throw at it, the more time they throw at it, the more power they take, it just shows the utter and complete insufficiency of what they're trying to do. It will never work. The disease is a lack of God. And you can't fix it if you never look at the source of the disease. We try to cover it up with money. We try to get one more taxpayer-subsidized program thinking it's going to work, but it never will because it never addresses the problem. It's like giving a new liver to a raging alcoholic. If they won't stop drinking, it won't work. They might feel better for a few days, but then they're going to pick up the bottle and start that whole process over again. I personally know two people who got livers and drank them to death again within a year. You can't, until you fix the underlying problem, you can't just throw money at it. It will not work. And that's why Paul spoke so powerfully about the power of the gospel. It's the only thing that can fix this world and the people within it. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 3, he said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Why does he use that term born again? Because he's dealing with the humanity that is spiritually dead. This is alive. The flesh part is alive. But we are born with a terminal virus disease that makes us dead spiritually. And then Jesus says something very important, and this will help you make sense of the world we live in. Jesus said, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, if you apply that to the world we live in, can a fleshly human government save us? Can a new program save us? Can man-made religion, based on our performance, save us? Here's something to remember when the elections are coming up. Can a political candidate save us? I think too many of us put too much faith in that. And I can get caught up in that too. I would say definitely no. 
And I don't even care how much how strong of a Christian they are. Something happens when they get to Washington and they just get overcome by the fleshliness of their surroundings. We have to attack spiritual problems in spiritual ways. And the gospel is that cure. That's the mystery that we have to explain to the world. And that administration of God's grace is meant to address that central problem. And people don't want to face this. They don't want to face the fact that humanity carries within them that virus of sin. And it makes every single person a dead man or dead woman walking who need to be born again into life. And only through believing and exercising faith in Jesus to save you can you be born again into the true life that God has for every person. That's what God has always wanted for us, to bring us from death and to give us that true life. Those are the answers to the mystery. And answers are great, but I want to leave you with this. God isn't always going to answer every mystery. God isn't always going to tell us the why behind what goes on in our life sometimes. I don't know about you, I'm 52 years old, and I don't understand everything that's happened in my life, and I don't understand it, or I, if I do begin to understand it, it's usually about 10 years later when I look back on it in hindsight. Why did I go through that awful time? Oh, that's why. You're not always going to have the answer. You're not always going to have the why. But what God does and what God asks of us is to trust him. When I was struggling with all the whys as an early Christian, I had already read through the Bible probably at least once if not twice. I was just devouring it, just reading it all the time. And I still had dozens of questions. And I was praying to God. I was doing everything I was supposed to do. And I was just struggling with my faith. And then we had an Easter program at our church. And it was a, a musical kind of presentation. We used to call them katatas. And there's a line in a song that was in the katata that just made absolute sense to me at that time. And I want to share it with you. And the song, and the song lyrics go, God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you can't see his plan, when you can't feel his hand, trust his heart. I don't know what everyone is going through today. And I don't know what tomorrow might hold. But I encourage you to carry those words with you as you face your tomorrow. That even as you don't understand I just encourage you, trust his heart for you. The same heart that gave his one and only son to die for you is the same heart that's guiding your life right now. Let's all rise. Verse 12 of chapter 3. 
says, in Jesus and through faith in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. So, Father God, we approach you in freedom and confidence this morning. I ask, Father, that if there is a why here that is very distressing to someone, that you will bring them to the place where they are comfortable with the mystery because they know the heart of the person guiding them. They trust in you that they can say, God, I may not know the reasons why. I may not understand your plan, but I trust your heart. I trust you for who you are. You have already shown your great love for us in sending your son to die for our sins. I trust in that, Lord. So, Father, I just lift up your people before you now. I ask, Father, that you give them a sense of peace as they go throughout this week. That no matter what the news shows, no matter what the, the radio says, or, or anything else that may be happening in their personal lives, that they will be able to trust in you to be comfortable with mystery because they know the heart of the person who is over all the universe. And not only the universe, but every detail of their life. Father God, I thank you. I bless your people now. Use them to spread the love of Jesus this week in thought, in word, and in deed. Lord God, I ask this in your name. Amen.